we've been spending the last uh, several weeks since the beginning of the year actually um, working through some history, working through some ideas, and, uh, and kind of laying out a history of ideas, um, many of them philosophical ideas that um, since the beginning of the 20th century have been worked into um, various institutions uh, within Western civilization and, those, and we're, we're sort of driving toward what the influence of these ideas has been in the church. And as they've been working themselves out in the church, uh, what uh, the effects of those are and as they influence the church, uh, we're going to, uh, as we end in, uh, at the end of April, by then we'll get to uh, what do we do about that? How do we think about that as, as the church? So we spent several weeks talking uh, about um, these philosophical ideas and their foundations. We spent some time talking about uh, Marxism and uh, that's influence, uh, the influence of Marxism on what's called critical theory. And hopefully we all have some working ideas of those, and we've certainly looked at those and compared some of those ideas to what we see in Scripture. And, uh, and then last week we spent a lot of time uh, talking about the influence on uh, one of the most precious institutions that we have, which is the family, um, and specifically talked about uh, fatherhood. Uh, so we're going to shift gears a little bit this morning and move away from critical theory for a time, and uh, we're going to talk about postmodernism. Now, with postmodernism, you're going to see a lot of similarity to a lot of the things that we've already talked about, but there are some critical differences. There's certainly some other key players. If you remember, uh, critical theory, we said, really began in Germany. Uh, well, postmodernism is going to come out of France. So you have a geographical difference as well, but all of these find their uh, resting place in the good old U.S. of A. So um, we're, gonna, we're going to develop some of these ideas. And as Christians, probably if you've heard of either one of these two, either critical theory or postmodernism, this is probably the one you've heard more about uh, because some leaders in the church over time have been a little bit more attuned to it. There have been several conferences over the last decade um, addressing this. Um, so you may have some ideas of what we're talking about. So again, I think it's important we have a little bit of a historical background, but I'm not going to camp out there too long. I want to get us into the ideas so we can think about these ideas in light of what we know uh, from Scripture. Uh, but I do want to share with you a quote um, that I think really kind of sums up uh, the, the issue with post- postmodernism and where we're going. And this is actually, you're very rarely going to hear me share a f- quote that is favorable from Frederick Nietzsche, but this is one uh, that he, he gave it. He said, uh, those who know that they are profound strive for clarity. Those who would like to seem profound to the crowd strive for obscurity. For the crowd believes that if it cannot see the bottom of something, it must be profound. It is so timid and dislikes going into the water. Um, One time I was listening to a lecture from R.C. Sproul, and he wanted to prove this point to all of his students, that if you want to seem profound, then you say a lot of really confusing or very important-sounding philosophical things. And everyone sits there and says, ooh, Ah, but nobody knows what you're talking about, but no one wants to ask the question because they don't want to go into the water to figure it out. So he held up a piece of chalk, and he said, what is this? And everyone kind of was giving these answers. Um, 
well, it's a compound of sources that are derived from the earth, and they have all the, you know, they're just going on and on and on. And he said, you know, there was a guy at the back of the classroom who, um, compared to everyone else, probably didn't have as much education, wasn't as well-spoken, um, and he said, uh, I don't know what all of them are talking about. That's a piece of chalk. And he said, exactly right. It's a piece of chalk. And that was his point, that, you know, we get, we get into these ways of thinking, and especially if you ever kind of dive into the world of academia, you start to read things and say, what are you even talking about? Well, postmodernism is an idea, is a philosophical idea that really prides itself on the confusion that it creates. And if you remember when we talked about critical theory, uh, that was one of the goals, was to introduce chaos into order. Remember we talked about that. And uh, that was a stated goal. That was something they sought to do. And postmodernism um, really has, uh, in many ways, the same sort of, of goal. Well, postmodernism uh, really came about a little bit later than critical theory, and as I mentioned, uh, in France, and it really came into the United States in the 1960s, a time period we have, uh, we have talked about already. Um, but what, what is it? Well, postmodernism is a very comprehensive philosophical rejection of the ideas of modernism, or otherwise known as the Enlightenment. And so the Enlightenment, in some ways, was helpful, in other ways, uh, not helpful. What, what are some of the things that came out of the Enlightenment, if you recall from when you studied this in school? What, what were some of the, the advances that we obtained from the Enlightenment? Yeah, art, uh, that was further developed. It certainly, pre-Enlightenment, we saw a lot of development in art as well, but certainly... Um, Sorry? Yeah, very humanistic art. Absolutely. And, and it came out in what was being done, that it was a focus on the human versus, um, especially versus things like uh, a landscape. You wouldn't see that as much. You see people. Um, and so the focus on the man. Yeah. Uh, I will say the foundations of modern science. Yeah, good. So you have things like uh, um, the scientific method and all these foundations of, of how we come to scientific conclusions today really... Uh, were, were developed um, during the Enlightenment far more than they ever had been before. What else? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. A lot, a lot of modern medicine today is developed on the ideas and the, fa- the findings uh, that came out of the Enlightenment, certainly. Uh, so th- there's a lot of things we can talk about, a lot of really positive things. But the Enlightenment wasn't, it really wasn't all good. There were some very, uh, there were some bad things that came out of it. Can anyone think of anything that came out uh, about as a result of Enlightenment thinking? What's that? Voltaire. Yes, Voltaire. Yeah, I, I, we can just sort of throw a blanket over all of it and say any, these sort of um, anti Christian, anti-faith, anti-supernatural thinking really came out of the Enlightenment. Um, So this is, modernism was very much a response to pre-modernism, which was marked by the supernatural, was marked by faith, was marked by um, the strength of the church. This is all pre-modernism. 
And then you have modernism where they say, well, if you can't see it, touch it, taste it, feel it, verify it, then it's not something you should take as true. And uh, obviously, uh, the attack there is on the church. Now, again, as we've seen with all of these ideas, there are many ways to poke holes in what they're saying. Nevertheless, that was, that was the thinking. Um, and so, what do we see? Well, we see the rise of atheistic thinking. We see um, things like Darwinism uh, really take off, uh, evolutionary theory. And all these things are really starting to develop, especially as discoveries are being made. And so if try, instead of trying to figure out how does, this, uh, how does this relate to what's revealed to us in Scripture and what does this say about natural revelation and God revealing himself to us in nature, uh, we're going to reject all of that in terms of revelation and we're simply going to focus on natural material and humanistic type of thinking. That really what's important is, is man. And so... Uh, it becomes a very man-centered way of thinking. And, and in fact, very vocal about the rejection of any kind of God-centered type of thinking. So, postmodernism then is a response to modernism. And you might think, oh, well, that could be a good thing. Maybe it's a swing back toward the age of, of faith, which uh, would be a good thing, but it certainly was not the case. So one of the things that postmodernists believed was so detrimental about modernism is, um, is what is coming out of the kinds of ways of thinking you, you use to get to a scientific or mathematical conclusion, which is that you have to state something is categorically true or false, that you make absolute claims about the truth of something or the verifiability of something that it is true, or that there is something that is absolute. And if we make claims of something being absolute, the postmodernists are going to come in and say, well, maybe not, maybe not absolute. Why are we talking in terms of absolute truths? Now, that's one aspect of postmodernism. Um, the influence of postmodernism is significant in pretty much every facet of everyday life. There's postmodern art. There's postmodern architecture. Uh, there's postmodern theories that relate to um, gender and race and sexuality. Uh, there's postmodern um, ideas uh, that relate to, uh, to religion and specifically uh, Christianity. Uh, amazingly, you don't see any postmodern Muslims and, uh, and nobody wants a postmodern brain surgeon. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about why that is as we, as we uh, press on. So, really, the idea is uh, that the common ideas of traditional society, if you will, need to be deconstructed. We need to question everything, and in doing so, uh, we're going to tear down a familiar theme we've been talking about is this structure of dominance and oppression. Remember, the, the critical theorists were saying all of us are oppressed and we just don't know it. It's because of capitalism. It's because of this traditional society. Well, the postmodernists have a very similar idea, but they're more proactive in saying, well, let's deconstruct all of it. Let's question everything and put questions in everyone's mind. And so the emphasis is on things like political correctness and identity politics, the freedom of speech, 
All these things that come out, and all of them having a very significant influence on the church. And that's where we are headed with all of this. So, um, any before I press on too much, any thoughts about any of that? I don't want to get too far ahead of where you're thinking. Yeah, Mark. Are we losing logic? Oh, absolutely, yes. No doubt about it. Yes. Um, yeah, in fact, some early leading postmodernists would say there is no such thing as what you're talking about. The idea of common sense is, is not a real thing. So, yes, you're, you're hitting it. You're nailing it. Um, what is... Can anyone think of one of the more famous statements that came out of Enlightenment thinking about mankind? I'll give you a hint. It was Rene Descartes, if you know any of your... Yes. Yeah, there you go. I think, therefore, I am. That was his conclusion. I'm a thinking being, therefore, this is how I conclude that I am, that I exist, because I think, therefore, I exist. So that is the sort of thing that the postmodernists were rejecting. They're saying... That kind of thinking um, is, is too structured, is too rigid, is too based in absolutes. We need to get away from that. Um, we need to doubt these kinds of things. Um, so what they were wanting to do then is to look again at institutions, to look at ideas, to look at ways of thinking, and to start to, as I said, deconstruct them. In fact, there is one of these mans... Um, named Derrida, and he wrote a book called Deconstructionism. And in that, uh, he was specifically looking at things like literature and saying, well, how do we interpret literature based on these ideas of deconstruction? So, for example, if you are to read, and I want you to think about this because we're going to get there in a second, is how does this relate to reading Scripture? If you're to read uh, the story of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn by... um, Mark Twain, my favorite, uh, my favorite of all fiction literature. Um, what is that a story about? What's, what's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn about? <laughs> that was more Tom Sawyer, yeah. Yeah, that's Tom. That's his friend Tom. Okay, that's certainly true, yeah. Uh, Huckleberry Finn, for the first time in his life, he's sort of, he's out on his own, he's coming of age, he's encountering the world afresh by this adventure, right? He gets on the water with, with a man named Jim who was, uh, he was a slave, and uh, they are traveling down the waters and they encounter different people, and Huckleberry Finn realizes a lot of things, um, and as you read it, he's looking at what people think about his new friend Jim and uh, what they say about him and how he should treat him. And he comes to the realization that Jim is a man that I'm friends with, that I love, that I care about. And so I'm, I'm going to reject those ideas and I'm going to love this man and care for him. And, uh, and we're going to be friends and we're going to have this great relationship. So it's a boy coming to look at the world around him and realize that there were a lot of wrong ideas. And how is he going to deal with those? And there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of um, influence from his family and from the church and everything else that plays into the story. So, pretty cut and dry, pretty simple story. Well, a postmodernist deconstructionist idea is to read this story now, 
But we're not just going to read it for what Mark Twain wrote. We're, we want to know what is the real, what's really going on here. Well, the postmodernists could look at this in all sorts of ways and say, well, you know what I think? I think that this is really a story about how, um, about how Mark Twain was really supportive of something like uh, the slave trade. And he liked portraying Jim in the way that he did um, because it made him look like he was um, uneducated and he wasn't as smart as Huckleberry Finn. And so really, uh, while on the surface it sounds like he's, he's writing something that is opposed to the ideas of slavery and oppression, uh, he's actually supporting the whole idea, right? And everyone kind of scratches their heads and rubs their beards and says, hmm, that's really good, that's, that's smart stuff. And then someone else comes in and says, well, you know what this is really about? It's about um, how we are repressive um, with boys. And what boys really need is to just be let free. And we keep them in the home too long. And when they're young boys, we need to set them free to discover all of the ways that they're oppressed by the world and by society. And we need to let them go. And if we just let them go, then the world is going to be a better place. And everyone says, that's it. That must be what it is. Uh, Mark Twain's teaching us so much here. So we can't read it for what he wrote it as. We need to deconstruct it and come up with our ideas. And since there are no absolutes, what do we say? Well, everyone's right. <laughs> yeah, Tyler. Yes, exactly. Um, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, um, I, I did a seminar on Tolkien last uh, summer. Uh, I was reading a journal article that was talking about this very thing, a, an academic journal um, talking about why we should think Tolkien was a uh, blatant racist because of how one of these, um, one of the made-up races uh, that he made up for his story, um, how they're being portrayed. Others thought he was maybe an anti-Semite because really he's sort of describing Jewish people in this other race of character that he's making. And so it goes on and on. At the end of the day, uh, Tolkien had none of this in mind when he was writing. He was just writing a very good, um, very good story. So if we just kind of stick with that idea for a minute, reading everything through a particular lens, and really this comes out now in universities, any major that you can take that ends in the word studies is going to be uh, where we find this stuff at play. Um, gender studies, women's studies, all of these kinds of things. What are they doing? Well, they're reading all of, all of culture, and especially all of the things that have been written, through the lens that they want to read it through. So if it's feminist studies, we're going to read through the lens of feminism. How do we read this work based on feminism? Well, Huckleberry Finn um, well, there really is no mention of many women, and the only one is his domineering aunt. And so it must be that, uh, that Mark Twain is trying to show that women are trying to uh, usurp the, um, they're trying to overthrow the patriarchy. And Mark Twain is saying that's a bad thing, and so we need to boycott this book. Let's burn it. <laughs> uh, so we need to read through this lens, right? So if we're thinking that way, what does that do to the area of biblical studies? Reading the scriptures. What does this start to do to our thinking if this is the way we're taught to think and reason through works of, of literature? What do you think? Yes. That's, that's the main thing. We get away from exegesis. What does the text say? 
What did the author intend uh, when he wrote this in relationship to the historical, cultural context, literary context, all of those important things we look at? And instead, we get into what's called eisegesis, me reading meaning into the text, me determining the meaning based on what ultimately, at the end of the day, I want it to say. And so this comes out very subtly, but it comes out in questions that we might ask uh, sitting in a living room doing a Bible study. That great, and by great I mean not great, question that is often asked. What does this text mean to you? (laughs) That's not a good question, is it? It doesn't matter what this text means to me. Just take to you off the end of that sentence. What does this text mean? Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't apply the text. Certainly, we want to apply it. But that's not the same question, right? What does this text mean, and how can we apply it to our lives is very different than saying, what does this text mean to you? Russ? Yep, exactly. Uh, And we'll get into this, but um, there are those who have fully embraced postmodern thinking and have sort of... Uh, especially about 15 years ago, really putting themselves forward as we're the new voice of Christianity. And that was something they were talking about, that the Bible is, it's alive, and since it's alive, as culture changes, so does the meaning of the text, right? As we develop our thinking, our ideas, our ways of interacting, so does uh, the way that we need to read and use the Bible or use the text. Um, So, That's exactly, and again, we'll get more into this, that's exactly what's going on when we see the church looking at questions about uh, relationships, for example. Why in the last 10 years have so many formerly decent, some of them very good denominations of the Christian faith, uh, taken on a full embrace of homosexual marriage and uh, the ordination of homosexual clergy and everything else? Well, it's not because they had a, uh, they had a solid um, foundation uh, of thinking in absolute terms with regard to the Scriptures. It's quite the opposite. They're asking the question, what does the text mean to us in light of today's culture? And they will come right out and tell you that. Because of where we are, because of how things have changed, um, that's why we're thinking in these ways. We need to adapt And this is exactly what the goal of postmodernism was and is. Um, The the goal uh, was to turn things around, to upset the apple cart, if you will. Uh, One of the leading postmodernists, if you get into the literature at all, you'll see his name a lot, Michel Foucault. And uh, something that he said was that the deepest strata of Western culture have been exposed and are once more stirring under our feet. And what he was saying was that these postmodern ideas are entering into culture into the West, and as a result, we're sort of seeing the rumblings, and we need to take advantage of that. We need to strike while the iron is hot, and and as a result, we need to question everything. And now uh, they believe that now that we're there, The age of faith and the age of enlightenment are beyond recovery. People are going to hear what we have to say. They're going to listen to our ideas, and they're never going to look back to those things. We can move on from that. And uh, in many ways, not entirely, thank God for that, but in many ways he was right. 
In many ways, the world has moved on from that. Um, But what he was saying, and this is a bold statement, is that for nearly 1,500 years, all of the way through the age of faith and the age of reason, everyone was wrong. 1,500 years, we just, we, we made it, hardly. We made it, though, but everything was a failure. And postmodernism is going to sweep in and correct it all. It's going to make things better for us. So, this is a complex, a very diverse movement. In no way are we going to have time to cover all of the bases. I just want to do a general overview and, and really get to its influence on the church. But I do want to give us... Um, uh, this morning, just something to kind of hang on to and think about uh, before we end and we come into next week. What are some of the uh, kind of summary ideas that are general things that can be said about the philosophy as a whole? Well, the first I've already been talking about, postmodernism stands in direct opposition to the Enlightenment ideas of absolute truth. Not only that absolute truth exists, but that it should even be sought The idea that we should even be asking uh, what absolute truth is and where we can find it. We shouldn't be seeking that. And that's both in the realm of faith and reason. Absolute truth, according to postmodernism, does not exist. Everything is completely contextual. So to say that something applies here and is true here in just the same way that it's true in Mumbai, India is not true according to the postmodern. Everything is contextual. Everything has a place in asking, what does this mean to you? There's nothing that's absolute. So truth, the whole idea of truth to the postmodernism, is a man-made construct. And many times you will hear them not even talk about truth. They talk about narratives and meta-narratives. Well, they're just trying to find another way to talk about reality without saying the word truth. Um, Truth, they believe, was not something that existed absolutely or prior to humanity. Now, in some ways, you could think, if they're trying to build this on an idea of we just sort of happen to exist out of nothing, um, okay, I can see how you might come to that conclusion. If everything just sort of collided together at some point and poof, we have the universe and now we're on it. Did truth exist prior to that? Well, when we come from a biblical worldview and we're thinking in terms of God, the creator, yes, of course. But if you're thinking just in terms of random accidents that bring about existence, okay, I can see how you might come to that conclusion. It's silly and takes far more faith uh, to hold to that than does believing in a God who has revealed himself. But nevertheless, uh, that's the claim. Yeah. Yeah. And to add to that is to say, is it true that the universe did not once exist? And they're going to have to sort of fall all over themselves to try and answer that question. So certainly... Uh, you get caught very quickly in a logical conundrum when you start to work through these. As Mark was asking, are we losing logic? Uh, Yes, it's gone. (laughs) You throw it out the window. Because it's not a category they want to deal with uh, and would say it's not a a fair question, is what the postmodernists would say. Clearly, I mean, which absolute truth, that there is no absolute truth. Right. Are you absolutely sure about that? Yeah. (laughs) You know, just real absurdity. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yes, absolutely. And we'll, we'll really get into that because that deals with the whole idea of intersectionality, which is a postmodern idea. And there's a lot of talk about that today, uh, but uh, we want to deal with the foundations. So the whole idea that your victim status matters, how victimized you are is uh, really important. And the whole, if you've been paying attention to the news, the whole issue he's talking about is a female tennis player uh, who uh, was one of the first to ever uh, come out and say that she was a homosexual. Um, she's now made a statement that it's not fair that transsexuals are competing in women's tennis events. Well, she's been celebrated for years and years because uh, she has come out of the closet and she's proud of her, of, of being a lesbian and all this. And, but now, we can't have anything else to do with her because she doesn't rank as high on the intersectionality scale. She doesn't rank as high in terms of her victim status. We need to look to the trans person instead. Yeah. Right. She called him a man. Yeah. Right. Exactly, and that goes back to what we had said even about critical theory, right? As uh, we, we mentioned last week, we were talking about the family and before that about sexuality and the ideas they had from the sexual revolution was, well, maybe, maybe we don't have two genders. Maybe we have a hundred of them to include Zim and Zed and whatever else you want to say. Um, so that's, that's part of that. Uh, second major idea, just... Uh, I'll give it to us and we'll, we'll talk more about it. Postmodernism rejects the notion that language has the capacity to accurately explain reality. So in other words, we don't have words to explain what's real. And so anything we use is a description of something, but it's never, it's never accurate to the extent that we can say that gets to it exactly. So the Enlightenment puts significant trust in language. Uh, so postmodernism is far more concerned than because we can't use words, we rely instead on personal experience. And so we move away from what do you think, what do you believe, to what do you feel. And that's the question that is, uh, is driving all of these postmodern ideas. What, how does this make you feel? What do you feel about this? And so then you hear people talking about ideas, not in terms of thinking, but in terms of feeling. I feel like whatever. A third, postmodernism rejects the idea of the superiority of Western civilization over other civilizations, and rather than being a purveyor of peace and prosperity, understands the West to be the primary source of oppression, both inside and outside the West. And you can see how that would, um, that they're going to look to things like war and uh, things like um, slavery, which... Um, you know, a lot of, again, as I said before, a lot of the things that they point to we wouldn't disagree with in terms of identifying the problem, but in terms of the solution or in terms of the analysis, uh, we, need to, we need to consider what they're saying and whether or not uh, they're true. Ultimately, postmodernists believe that the West is, uh, is patriarchal, which is a word that gets thrown around all the time. Um, in other words, that the West is responsible for all the ills in the world because we come in and try to assert our dominance and our influence on the world stage, and as a result, uh, we create all kinds of turmoil and upheaval. And fourthly, postmodernism embrace, embraces and adapts Marxist ideology to incorporate uh, this postmodern ideal into all the sectors of society. So again, we're right back to where we began several weeks back and these Marxist ideals. 
Uh, you will not find a, a self-professing postmodernist who is not also identifying on some realm of the spectrum of Marxism and this whole idea, again, of oppression, oppressor, victim, victimhood status, all of these things that we've, we've talked about. So all of this uh, has a very significant influence on the church. We haven't talked a lot about that today, but that's where uh, we will be in the next few weeks. As you think, though, about these, especially these four summary ideas, there's a lot there with regard to the church. The idea of truth, that's obviously, of all of this, the most important to the church. The idea of language, can, the, can our language uh, articulate anything to us that is meaningful? If not, then we have a problem with the Bible, right? And then a lot of questions come out about how we look at Scripture. Uh, the idea of Western um, superiority in terms of civilization. We're not talking about we as a people are better than the rest of the world. We're saying uh, a civilization based on, built upon biblical principles from its founding has a place in the world uh, where people have achieved greater peace and greater prosperity than any other time in the history of the world. Um, that is because of the church. That is because of Christianity. That is because of the Bible. Um, and so we'll talk about that. And then the whole idea of, uh, of Marxism, uh, we've, we've discussed that uh, to, to great length and, and how that plays out. So these are the four main ideas of postmodernism that we'll be looking at and thinking through um, and seeking to relate to what we see in Scripture. So um, critical theory is a big one. It's an important one, and the influence is far-reaching. But um, it's nothing compared to what we see with postmodernism. Um, so we will uh, spend the rest of our time there and, uh, and then deal with uh, application in the end. Any concluding thoughts or comments before we wrap it up? Yeah. <coughs> right, right. You need to go find that on your own. Right. The idea that we would ever tell our children that something is a certain way and it must be that way and we sort of have demands and... Um, and we expect things of them, that is, and we saw this with critical theory, that is the great sin, right? That we would have demands on people in society that they act or think in a certain way. Um, so good luck raising a child with that mentality, <laughs> without them raising up to kill you in your sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. And if you're not aware, uh, and I'll pray after I say this, Virginia's talking about the uh, United Methodist Church is meeting this week to decide on this very issue of homosexuality. Um, they have a general conference. It's a large denomination that's global. Um, so what you have is a lot of uh, the United Methodist churches in other parts of the world rejecting what's going on in the West, and a lot, not all, Certainly not all by any means, but a lot of um, churches, especially in the United States, Canada, and Europe, are trying to promote these, this homosexual agenda to where they want to make significant changes within the de denomination, uh, to where they can ordain homosexual clergy and perform same-sex weddings and all this sort of thing. So they're meeting this week to talk about that, and, uh, and I agree. It would be good uh, to pray for them. So let's pray.
Uh, Father, thank you uh, so much for this time, for our discussion, for the opportunity to think uh, about ideas and how they influence our lives, our culture, and how we look at, think through, and apply the scriptures. And uh, Lord, um, we don't want to think about these things, that we would be scared to be uh, part of this world that you've put us in. Uh, We are reminded uh, that the Lord Jesus prayed uh, that you not take us out of the world, but that you keep us in it and keep us faithful in the midst of it. Uh, that we would be voices of truth in the wilderness, uh, that we would be like John the Baptist uh, who, who cried out from the wilderness, um, proclaiming the way, the truth, and the life and pointing others to the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that be um, what we all see as our calling in life, our purpose as your people, and, uh, and what you uh, would call each of us to do. And we do pray this morning for... Uh, for the United Methodist Church and for their general conference as they meet, Lord, with those who truly know and love and want to obey the Lord Jesus and to follow your word, uh, to walk faithfully in the faith, Lord, would they, uh, would they have uh, this same voice? Would they be heard? Uh, we pray that you would give them confidence in the truth of your word. You give them assurance in your provision uh, and no matter what happens, Lord, that you would protect them, that they would not, uh, that they would not um, grow bitter, that they would not grow angry um, at you, but that they would certainly be angry at sin as you are angry at sin, that they would walk in the truth, that they would remain faithful, and that you, if, uh, if things go the way uh, that they may go uh, against you, that they might find a home where they are embraced and loved and nurtured in the truth. Uh, but Lord, so, so many things happening there, and we just pray that uh, you would be with your people, uh, that they would be faithful and strong. We do pray now as we prepare ourselves for worship, uh, that you would prepare our hearts, uh, that as we sing and pray and hear your word read and preached in all of these ways, Lord, that you would, uh, you would be glorified, that our hearts would be filled, that our joy would be complete in the Lord Jesus, and we ask this all in his name, amen. Amen.